you know, I follow this random person on Twitter who does neural net learning research. Is that at real Donald Trump? (laughs) Yeah. Well, right. (laughs) Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by narrowly timing their episode around daylight savings time to avoid being completely overwritten by the call to prayer as we were in our first episode. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, coming to us from Istanbul, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? It's great to be back. Charles, how are you? I'm doing just fine, although I'm going to be sleep-deprived for the next couple of weeks because of that one hour that I lost today. Yeah, the princess and the pea. Oh, yes. Of, uh, yeah. that's, that's absolutely what it is. Now, they... they you know, in theory, sleep should be a bigger priority for all of us because we we know what it does to you when you don't get enough sleep. And yet somehow we're never really able to find time for it. You know, it, it's not only are you getting back late from something, sleep is the easiest thing to cut out of your day. You know, you can't cut out hours of work. You can't cut out the amount of time it takes you to commute. You can't really cut out you know, a lot of social events, but sleep, you go, well, you know, what's the difference between eight hours and six hours of sleep? And then over the course of a month, suddenly you're um, hobbling around in a zombie-like state, which is where I expect to be by around March 29th. That's a, that's a good point. It, you know, it's, we all know that we should pay more attention to it, and it'd be better for us if we did, but we uh, we cheat ourselves by... Yeah, I'm not keeping our priorities straight in that in that way. It's true. It's true. Can you think of any examples, David, where a country on a larger, grand, strategic stage might not keep its priorities straight? Oh man, that's a that's a great question. Why? Thank you. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean the I mean the news from from the past couple of years <laughs> it comes to right. mind. Uh, but yeah, in particular, it just, it strikes me uh, to be still amazed uh, at how willingly we fall into the same hole as a society in terms of what, uh, what catches our attention and what we spend time talking about and what the, what the various sort of, mainstream national media, the most, most discussed cable news, these types of programs, um, spend time focusing on and how their attention gets dragged from, uh, (laughs) slower moving, quieter, but ultimately fundamentally the most important things like sleep or, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's on the Russia investigation and instead, uh, you know, refuse to stop themselves from staying up watching, you know, that doing that extra hour to like watch all the comedians do their takes on the latest sort of reveal in the Stormy Daniels saga, you know, that kind of thing. It's a, it's frustrating. And I guess part of it, I'm pretty committed to to understanding the right amount of anti-elitism to adopt in my life. Um, 
this is I don't want to open it. This potentially would open up an entirely different conversation, but um, I don't want to simply fall into a default snobbish position of saying, "Oh, hoy polloi, talk about sex and uh, scandal," and I get distracted by this all this noise that signifies nothing, uh, whereas we intelligent people who can read multi-page documents you know, focus on uh, corruption and things like this. You know, I, I, I don't want to fall into that trap because it seems like the easy path. And it, to some extent, if people are, if people fixate on a sex scandal and they fix on, they fix on it, not in the sort of, way that the left did, but not the, the left, but many supporters of Clinton did where it was kind of a joke. Right. It's like, Oh, look at slick Willie go. You know, isn't that funny? Um, hound dog, you know, but the way that it's, the way that it's catching people's attention relative to Donald Trump is that people are furious about it. And if they're furious about a scandal that I say shouldn't be as important as something that, you know, a slow, quiet investigation that might actually prove that something illegal happened. Um, I'm kind of questioning myself. I'm questioning my own priorities, I, I suppose. Because if people are furious about wrongdoing and deficient character, like, I, to some extent, I don't want to second-guess them. But here we are with our podcast, so our opinions, we clearly think that our opinions are more important or at least important enough for other people to consider. We think it's important uh, enough for us to read them into a microphone. That's not the same as thinking other people are going to listen. Yeah. Read. <laughs> you've, you've gamed this all out and have your entire uh, thing scripted. Oh yes, absolutely. Was that not clear from how perfect and unbroken all of my lines of speech are? Yeah. This is actually completely, this is a total segue, but no, okay. Um, yeah, go on, go on. Uh, there's this, um, Spanish, this new Spanish show, like a crime drama called, um, cash heist, I think is the, uh, okay. money, he money heist or something is the English translation. Uh, La Casa de La Casa de Papel is the Spanish. And it's sort of neat. Cause it's like very Guy Ritchie contemporary aesthetic mm -hmm. in some sense, but it, there's also this like very clear reference to the Count of Monte Cristo, I would say. And the segue, I hope it's obvious. <laughs> Going back to my default position of elitism, I hope it's obvious that the segue is, you know, your prescripted uh, dialogue, you know, is sort of present in this Mount, Count of Monte Cristo storyline where this guy is like done things 20 years ago, you know, the fruits of which are, only revealed in the next episode kind of a thing. Hmm. Anyway, but, but <laughs> showing our complete inability to keep things, keep priorities straight and focus on the things that matter. Let's get back to our conversation. Yeah, so the thing about, I mean, so sex scandals, particularly as they relate to Donald Trump here, it does bother me that the salacious part is the part that gets people's attention. But we shouldn't necessarily make that a hoi polloi versus um, anything else because, um, you know, it's the elites in the media who cover it nonstop. 
Now, granted, they cover it because it gets the ratings from the hoi polloi, but, you know, it's not as if they're completely helpless people being buffeted in the wind by whatever gives them ratings. They make a choice to cover the salacious parts. Or they make, a, they make a choice in how they frame the coverage of the salacious parts. They could make it clearer to people that this could be some massive campaign funding violation because they essentially laundered money from the campaign to pay off a porn star. Like, that's bad even without the sex part. Right. And, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think, first of all, I think that um, in a complex society talking about elites is um, is itself perhaps a distraction because in any particular endeavor the whole point of a complex society is to have some people who focus on one set of activities and do it better than other people for those other people you know, for the benefit of those other people. And so uh, if you're talking about politics and social cultural commentary, you expect the people who do that full time, more or less, uh, who have done it and built an audience, you know, they, they are doing it for other people. They're doing it presumably better than other people are doing it with, you know, with, Going back to the um, uh, sort of classical conception of, of you know, an ideal politics as people ruling and being ruled in turn, you know, uh, whether or not we say that, I'm not saying other people couldn't enter the realm of social and public commentary um, if they so chose, but they just aren't. It's not a value statement. It's just it's a statement of fact. Uh, so we rely on specialization and expertise, and that expertise basically implies what we would be talking about when we were talking about elitism. It just uh, strips out any normative judgment about it. Right. I think when a um, lot of people say elites in a disdainful way, what they mean is not so much um, people who know what they're talking about as they almost view elites not as a learned class, but as a class that just has the privilege of being in charge for some unknown reason. Right. Um, I guess the, the, the way in which elitism has been problematized is, um, by conflating, basically saying anyone who is an expert is attempting to wield their expertise as a way of achieving power over you uh, and they've only achieved their expertise through corrupt means, you know, that that's, that's basically the, that's the kind of populist uh, takedown of expertise. Um, I follow, actually I follow the guy, this guy, uh, Tom Nichols, uh, who wrote a book called the death of expertise. Right. Uh, he's, he's a, a really radio free Tom is his yeah, Twitter exactly. name, right? Yeah. Twitter okay. I, I, I don't follow him, but I read a lot of his tweets. Yeah. Because other people that I follow retweet him a lot. Yeah. Um, that's another interesting sort of, uh, hopefully it's an interesting segue that um, I've been, I've spent this last few months trying to get the hang of using Twitter as a tool for accessing mm. information. 
And I've only just gotten to the level of realizing there are a certain group of people I don't actually have to follow because the people I follow retweet them. So I can keep my, my sort of, I can keep my stable kind of tightly managed. Well, I mean, so I don't know if we've discussed this at least on the show before, but I take a dinosaur's approach to Twitter, which is that I have a Twitter account. I have the Twitter app, but when I want to read what other people are saying on Twitter, I don't go to the app. I just go to my web browser where I have bookmarked all of the people that I want to keep reading. (laughs) And the reason for this is that I don't like the way Twitter curates what you see. I don't like the order it presents things in. I don't like the way it updates. I don't like any of that. And Mm -hmm. it's, I have, I've found that I actually miss out a lot, miss out on a lot by using the Twitter app that I don't miss by just going to their bookmarked page. I don't, I don't really use apps that much anymore. Um, I've never used the Twitter app. I just go online uh, to the – I just use my my uh, laptop as well. Mm. Well, here we are. We've, we've learned something about each other. We have. Although I think you, I think you mentioned that before, but Probably. maybe not on, the show, on, the, uh, on air as it were. But it was relevant but to it up again for people who haven't listened to all 24 previous hours of this show. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of amazing. Let, you know, let's, let's, let's navel gaze for a moment. It's kind of amazing that we've – what accumulates when you just uh, whack away at something uh, slowly over time. Yes. However, let's speaking of you know whacking away slowly at something over time. Um, I hope that's not a sex scandal. Segue. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But, all right, that's, that, was, that was that was not bad. But now I don't know what to do because right. I was trying to go. There's, there's, there's no escape. Um, well, yeah, so yeah, we talk about the salacious details, and we were talking about how, you know, the real scandal with this as far as, you know, what we should, there's what we should be concerned about as hoity-toity elites, and what, as a society, we get more concerned about. As, you know, as a society, we tend to obsess over the lurid details of, oh, we want to make sure this NDA goes away so we can hear the entire lurid story and oh is melania not holding hands with trump anymore all of those details which as a practical governing matter are irrelevant to whether donald trump is a good president unless like with bill clinton they just lead to him being distracted too much but um there is a real scandal at the heart of this which cuts to a big portion of what democracy is and how democracy functions which is whether they effectively laundered money from the trump campaign to pay off a porn star not to tell her story right before the election. A story that very likely would have tipped the election, given how close it was that basically anything could have tipped the election at that point. Right. Um, yeah. Likewise, with the, with the, with the, the Steele dossier, um, what's the one yeah. detail everyone wants to talk about? They want to talk about whether there's a PP tape, as Stephen Colbert always puts it on his show. And that's kind of... The whole Steele dossier has become um, centered around that detail, even though that detail is not particularly relevant to much of it. You could say, well, that's material Putin could use to hang over Trump, but that's not really the important part. I have no obvious. I have not read the Steele dossier, but have you have you did you read the Jane Meyer uh, piece in The New Yorker? No. About this. It's astonishing. It's one of these things that. You know, no, wait, you, is this, you, is this you, the you, one about Steele himself? Yeah. Oh, yeah, then I did read that one. Yeah, I did. Okay, well. well. 
here we are. So many hours of conversation and still still learning about each other. Communicate. Um, um, yeah, because it, it gets into the timeline right. and and how he didn't it. want to include. Some people exactly. said, "Don't include well, he this." Was, he it was will about it. He obviously yeah. did want to because he did he, include it. But he felt that it was necessary to have everything because if you have a potential, he was a professional, right? And he's he a professional. Was, he thought he was talking to professionals, and it wasn't intended to be consumed by people who would be distracted by that detail. Right. It was it was intended to be. Um, you know, the, the point of including it from his perspective was to, uh, you know, as someone who was doing a job, uh, he was conveying all the information that he had any reason to believe might have been relevant to the terms of the contract and the, you know, massive weight. Again, I haven't actually, I haven't read all of the Steele dossier right. yet, as it's been, um, you know, uh, revealed or shared, but um, the parts I've read of it and the descriptions I've read of it, uh, including in this article, you know, make it clear that the uh, large, the heavier weight of the, of the, of the dossier is to show these longstanding connections. Right. Uh, and they come out of a group of people who have expertise about how the Russians, um, both in the term, you know, both Russian oligarchs and this hybrid political and economic elite, as well as the intelligence and security community, many of whom have segued into that uh, oligarchic uh, political and economic elite, you know, how those two groups operate and how they operate in concert, uh, or I suppose three groups. Yeah, that's the point of it. But then, as you said, it's like, let's just flip, flip to the back. Go, let's just flip to the back. Okay. Where's the P tape? <laughs> where's the, where's the, where's the salacious stuff? Which, and, and what's um, interesting from the very, so I, of course, again, having not read this part of the Steele dossier, I just have had things relayed to me second or third hand. Um, the allegation isn't, so Trump says in his sort of, oh, of course, he's a known germaphobe. Why would he do something like that? To which, um, I mean, there are a number of possible responses to that. But um, my un is my understanding from the description I heard of it is not that they were urinating on him, allegedly, but to defile the bed that Obama slept in. Right, which seems like a total Trump move. It does I seem mean, like a total Trump move. Go. And it's not quite as salacious because it's not really a sex act if that's the purpose. But well, people want it to be a sex act because they want the salacious part. I'm not, I'm not totally sure where, where you're, where the point of, of this is. Well, I'm just saying that cause... people are trying to take it and make it sexual and salacious when, I mean, tr the idea of Trump just being a petty person who wants to defile things that well, other people touched. People have all sorts of weird, you know, kinks and gets th and get thrills from all sorts of weird stuff. And so if you if you hire a prostitute and tell the, you know, this person to that you're, you know, that you want to watch them peeing on something, um, even if they're not peeing on you, even if they're not touching you, that can be sexual. It sort of seems in fact on its face to be sexual, um, in the sense of, you know, it seems on its face to be sexual since we've already gone past, 
like an intimate romantic encounter. Is you, you've hired a prostitute and you're going to watch them pee on something. So it, it, we're sort of splitting hairs um, here. I'd say it, it is pretty clearly sexual. But uh, the point that you are um, making that I agree with is that it just introduces this, like a dispute over something that is totally irrelevant, which is that Trump can quibble about like what he's being accused of, you know, like if he can, if he can get us, if he can get us, you know, debating about whether he was peed on or something else was peed on, then he's gotten us debating over something irrelevant. He's not as worried about our priorities. Right. Unless, and now going back to my, you know, the qualm or the sort of the, the question I asked myself or, you know, that I mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, if people are having the conversation as a way of getting themselves fired up because they think, okay, if there's smoke, there's fire, this is a disgusting, filthy man. And, um, you know, it starts here and who knows where it ends. Then they don't need to know all the details of the wire transfers and, you know, who met with who, because they're just regular folks. You know, the only people who need to know those details are the relevant government authorities and, um, you know, the, the jurors, uh, and I'm of, I'm still of two minds about, um, about how much we should jump on people's cases for focusing on easily understood, but ultimately probably confusing and irrelevant details like the golden shower stuff, as opposed to, you know, uh, these details about like how exactly the FBI or CIA could demonstrate or NSA could demonstrate that the, um, Trump tower was communicating with alpha bank in Moscow, you know, like that kind of stuff that like, I read a long form article about that many months ago and uh, it sounds really interesting, but you know, it's way above my pay grade and why should people really, you know, why should people, why should people invest the time in informing themselves to the point where they can have meaningful conversations about that, as opposed to simply saying, man, that guy's a crook. We've got to get him out of there as quickly as possible. Look, he's even, you know, um, cheating on his wife, you know, with, with porn stars, uh, after she gave birth to their child. Yeah, he, he's not the best person. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but, well, that's, you know, it's, we've actually come at this in a way where we're sort of reframing our priorities then. That you know, we know we you yeah. can know what's important, but also know that communicating what's important requires, um, you know, a slightly different perspective on it. Because, but is it misleading then, where the the idea is you're trying to communicate to the people this man is a crook, he needs to be out of there? Um, does it matter if you're using the exact details of wire transfers? Or is it misleading uh, uh, to some extent to get them there by talking about the lurid details? Yeah, I, you know, it's. It, it, I, it, I, just, I agree that it's. It's, it's actually just. It's actually complicated because um, 
it's just so easy to look down on people and condescend. And that also means um, to talk down to. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell if I was condescending by using the word condescending or if you were condescending by explaining it. I'm well, going to go with the latter. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, but you, you find people where they are and then ideally you can go with them uh, to a better place if you need to go to a better place. And um, that sort of sounded like the afterlife. I'm, I'm, it I'm did. Not, it did sound like that. Didn't mean to take it in that direction, but uh, you know, but that's, that's where I'm, you know, I've been trying to question a lot of my modes of operating because it's, it, it's hard to, it's just hard to tell where to draw the line between Because you, you read a story about, you know, just the other day I saw something about, um, maybe it's in Reuters or New York times, but, uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, there were, uh, you know, these coal miners, these, again, speaking of priorities, it's like, why are we paying attention to these people that are such a, you know, insignificantly small part of the economy? Well, no one's insignificant. They're also, you know, you know, they don't live here in this country, they're all human beings. But anyway, let's just move beyond that. Anyway, uh, whether or not we're paying too much attention to these people here, we are paying attention to them. And you had these people saying, um, okay, uh, we're going to these classes to get, you know, federally funded retraining, job, job training. And there were people who were in, who were like signed up for these classes who then said, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to take the class because I don't need to, because coal is coming back. The president said so. And it is hard not to look down on those people. Uh, you know, someone who would say that, that's just so clearly, uh, childish. It's just childish. And it's hard not to look down at a child if that, or it's hard not to look down at an adult who is acting like a child. Um, that being said, um, you know, it's hard for that child or for that adult acting like a child in a particular moment to then cooperate with you and listen to you when they're in a more sober thinking mode, if you have told them they're acting like a child. So right. uh, no, that's the dilemma that I am trying to work out for myself. But that, I mean, you, you sort of came close to what, in my opinion, has been, um, in, in terms of priorities, the problem with how we've approached a lot of things involving trade over the last 20, 30 years, which is that... We started talking about trade as a win-win. You know, it's better for us. It's better for the countries we lower the tariffs with. And on the whole, that's true. But there will be specific people and specific industries that win or lose under certain arrangements, which yeah. is why some people are saying, oh, ha-ha, look, the steel and aluminum manufacturers had their stock go up after Trump did his tariffs. Clearly, it's a good idea. You're like, that's not – no. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I mean, as, as was then pointed out, there are more people – more people are expected to lose their jobs in steel and aluminum using industries because of the tariffs than work in steel and aluminum producing um, industries right. in this country. So when we, we talk about something like NAFTA 
and we, 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 we go back 30 years and we have this issue that the politicians come across, which is, all right, we've got a trade thing that we know is great for the country on the whole. It's going to increase prosperity. It's going to do a lot of great things. But there are going to be some people who are going to lose out in terms of you know manufacturing. And what they should have done 30 years ago was to be open about that and say, look, this is going to impact certain industries. We're going to provide you with retraining. We're going to make sure that you're prepared to compete in the new economy. And, you know, they always, as you said with the, the coal miner example, they set up a little bit of that. But the problem is, from a rhetorical standpoint, politicians made the decision way back when not to say these industries are gone and they're not coming back. They made the decision to say, we'll bring them back. And every person running was saying, no, we'll bring manufacturing back. We will. They would all keep saying this. And just like you said in your example with the coal miner, People hear this. People listen to what the president says. And yeah. it's, you know, to some extent, how much can you blame the person who believes what the most powerful man in the world is telling him about his industry? Right. Why would you, you might think to yourself, well, this is the person I'm supposed to trust. So instead, we keep having this problem where we've made the, we've made it worse and worse and worse. Because if we just accepted that truth 30 years ago, we could have had, you know, very functioning, functional retraining things in, in place. Um, we could have it so we don't have to keep playing weird protectionist games with various industries all to try to just keep this industry limping along. And it just sort of compounds the untruths because we can't at this point, they're sort of yeah. too committed to saying they'll bring back manufacturing and coal mining. Well, part of the problem is also that, uh, and I'd say this, the, the lion's share of the problem is that the country for the last 30 years has um, walked away from the safety net that in other countries undergirds a functioning dynamic and uh, rapidly regenerating labor force. You know, so um, I mean, Northern European countries that are extremely successful, that are, I mean, if you want to, if you want to see capitalism actually, you know, actually functioning in a way that both is capitalist, but also works for publics, that's where you go. You know, you go to where Bernie Sanders points, because um, you know, if you if you wanted to get a trapeze artist, uh, you know, you want to take someone from the crowd and say, hey, you know, learn these tricks. I mean, I'll I'll teach you everything you need to know, but just get up there on the on the trapeze and start start going. And you know, they get up there and they look down and they're like, there's no there's no net. You know, if there's no net, they're going to cling to that bar. <laughs> they're not going to do any tricks. You know, but when you put the net up there. You, you the the participant in the in the activity can can take risks and uh, gain the rewards for those risks because they know that when they fall as you know when um, and this is, everybody should know this fact you know the actually I should know this fact with better detail but in general terms you know in the Great Recession uh, Germany the German government uh, I don't know if they, Another thing would be good to know. I don't know if they um, enacted any special measures or simply the 
measures that were in place were such that uh, compared to the United States, almost no one got fired as industries were down shifting due to the, due to the lack of demand. Uh, people were furloughed, but their positions were maintained. People were sent on onto sort of retraining programs or people's hours were cut. You know, so people suffered, but then were there in place so that when the economy turned around, um, they were not disconnected from their previous jobs. Some of them had new skills. You know, it was just, it was just a great system because there was a buffer, there was support, there was a safety net and it made capitalism work there. You know, it made, it makes those, uh, you know, those people more effective workers. It makes the companies better, uh, healthier companies because they can take the hit and they don't, you know, they don't, they don't have this, um, sort of fragility that, um, companies that have to constantly retrain workers because the old ones get fired and then are just replaced by people who are, you know, frightened of their future, uh, because, you know, they need a job for healthcare or whatever else, you know, all these, all these problems we have in the United States. Um, and you know, what I was saying about sort of ad adults acting like children, um, you know, I don't want to, I already said that it's like a, it's not a helpful metaphor because, you know, it's just not helpful to tell someone to their face that they're acting like a child. But, um, at some level, you know, we all start as children. Part of being a child is being fearful On and having an level? attachment. <laughs> no, don't we all start as children by definition? Well, we are, all, we, all, we all start as children. <laughs> At some level, part of being a child is, oh, you know, part of uh, some level, part of being a child is is to be fearful and to uh, to grapple with the question of wanting to say, you know, of stasis and you know, and and renewal and growth. Uh, you know, lots of children have difficulty putting aside childish things uh, and embracing the future, and that's what parents are for that's what communities are for that's and that's what leaders should be for i mean this this I, this uh, analogy of the you know the, of a political leader as the parent you know of the society is problematic in many ways but um you know it could be the, the it could be the parent or it could be the coach or it could be the spiritual advisor or it could be the teacher you know, it's just the relevant adult, <laughs> it's just the, whatever the helpful adult who happens to be around, uh, you know, the, the political leader can, can play that role in encouraging and supporting and, uh, and not lying, you know, not, not necessarily being brutal and cruel about, uh, giving people a kick in the pants, but, uh, but not telling them lies that they can comfort themselves with briefly comfort themselves with until reality pierces the lie. Um, yeah. This is, and this, to the extent that we're at all committing to this idea of priorities as a theme for this conversation, that's not a high priority um, for me. Yeah. It, uh, I guess the, it, it's become sort of a spiritual thing, you know, having right. priorities for truth in general. Exactly. But, I think actually, well, 
something we had talked about before doing the show, and this is it's getting a little long now. Um, or we're sort of we're edging up on uh, the deadline that we've set for ourselves. Do we have but, like twenty minutes left? But go on. Well, this is I mean, my point. Is it's a potential? I was going to change the subject to some oh. extent back to uh, something we discussed before starting the show. Um, which actually has a segue from both the discussion we were having of expertise and relying on cultural commentators, you know, political commentators, relying on other people for their opinions. Uh, and this thing I just said about, you know, to what extent does this have to do with priorities? Well, it's a priority for the truth uh, and a constructive approach to the truth. Uh to telling the truth about society that, you know, you had mentioned uh, being interested in this kerfuffle over the uh, New York Times editorial, recent decisions in staffing at the New York Times <laughs> editorial board. Yeah. Did you want to? This is, so, well, this is, I mean, so I, I didn't get to, before we were talking to explain the, um, uh, the, wh quite where it was going, but so I, follow quote unquote by which i mean i have bookmarked and i go to their pages because i'm a dinosaur and this is what i like um a number of you know the the, the never trump conservatives and a story that's been one of the things that's been really big in their circle this past week has been this barry weiss column in the new york times about um, campus protests and how far left college students are really obnoxious and they demand impossible things from people and they're becoming essentially very, very illiberal. And um, I had not, so I heard people talking about this column long before I actually caught a link to it. You know how Twitter can be where you hear people talking about a thing and you don't know where this begins or what it's really about. Well, eventually I heard that she had some error in it where she had quoted in uh, an Antifa account that was actually a parody account in the story, and she'd use that as an example. And then that example was removed. And so I read the article after that had already been removed, and the article stood on its own. That part was completely, I mean, it seemed unnecessary. I don't know if they actually did any rewrites of it. I just know that I didn't even notice where in the piece it would have been. I mean, I probably could have guessed, but it wasn't. there wasn't a glaring part where you thought, hmm, I think they cut something here. This doesn't make sense. So I read this story, and I was expecting, based on people talking about it being this massive, you know, controversy um, that had that had come about, I was expecting it to be some inflammatory, awful thing. And I've read a lot of awful things about, oh, those student protests, and they're so horrible, and they're the biggest problem in America right now. Our real priority needs to be shutting down these awful liberals on college campuses that don't let conservatives speak and throw mob justice everywhere and all of that. So I read this I read this column and it struck me as very balanced, very fair. It was the best look by a conservative person I had seen at campus protests up to that point. Um, I mean, I, I thought it was fine. And uh, so I post this on my Facebook page and I say, you know, I know this had a, a part that had to get edited out and it caused some controversy. But with that part already edited out and reading it, it seemed fine. It seemed like a reasonable take. I mean, maybe, you know, it's not the biggest priority in the world for us to worry about what college students are saying, but here it is. 
and um, and I got a bunch of comments to it by my you know fellow left center left people on Facebook saying um, yes, this was a very reasonable, very you know moderate, uh, decent column. There was nothing too awful in it. Now that the error has been corrected. And one of David and my uh, uh, mutual friends from uh, from Yale, Irina, had commented in there saying, oh, interesting, something about it. And then she reposted, not my post, but the um, she linked the article on her own Facebook page just saying thoughts. And there were 88 comments as of when I saw it. Oh, man. And they were all tearing into the article. It was a, It was the polar opposite response. To what I got on my um, my circle of people, um, which I just thought was very strange, and what a lot of the people were focusing on in criticizing the article was, you know, oh well, it had this lie about Antifa people, and and it all falls apart when you take that out. Which again, I had said I didn't even notice where it would have been. And lots of people saying, well, she also said this, this, and this at some other points, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and these were all really criticisms not against what the column was saying, but against other things that the author had said. And I thought that to be to be kind of unhelpful. I think that it's not – I mean, there aren't that many people where I think this person has said something so horrible you could never like listen to them again. Um, that's just not a common occurrence. And, uh, you know, they started dredging up, oh, well, here's some other stuff that she said that was obnoxious. Then some people said, well, the real problem is that she's constantly posting about student excesses, silencing people on campus. And I saw on some other Twitter stuff that I followed, people taking screenshots of all of her last several columns, and they're all about those awful liberals on college campuses silencing conservative speakers. And they're saying that the real problem, it's not that her, her article is, is bad, it's that She's obsessed with this issue. It's her only priority. You'd think that was the biggest problem in America right now. And I don't know. It just felt like people approached the column wanting to pick a fight. Like that was their priority. Their priority wasn't to have a reasonable discussion about it. Their priority was, I want to have a fight about this. Yeah. And I kind because I kind of wonder if the if it really just came down to we said, you're not allowed to go off topic. You're not allowed to talk about anything else. You're not allowed to bring up anything else. Any authors have said, authors have said, you sit down with people in a room and say, we're just going to discuss whether X, Y, or Z is appropriate behavior on a college campus. How far off would most of us be on some of those questions? Would you say it's appropriate to go in and shout over the person who's speaking? I think most people would say, no, that's probably not appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that is a good... I think it's good to have mechanisms for stopping yourself, stepping back and clearing and focusing your mind uh, during these kinds of Twitter storms, cultural debates um, in, in the way that you just described. I think that's a good example of one of those mechanisms where rather than getting into the Rather than getting immediately into the weeds of this or that key flaw that some person claims destroys, you know, the argument, right? The, the sort of yeah. inflamed language of internet takedowns. 
uh, or not, you know, just step back and say, okay, what are, what are we actually talking about? What's, where are we now? What do I th- actually think would be a good place to be? Let's just let me simply now describe that. And then let me see if that differs with what other people are saying. And I think I agree with you that most uh, people would probably end up pretty, pretty close to each other. Um, and then the ones that don't, you have learned something. Right. right? And then you've actually, uh, that'd that, be a situation where the, where communication, imagine this, communication would actually give the people involved in that act more information, better, more reliable information than when they started. Right. Can you even imagine know. something like that? I thought all news was about reinforcing pre-existing beliefs. Right. Um, and that's that's what I find uh, very troubling and frustrating again and again because I'm a naive fool is, you know, when I read something, a review of a book or a review of a comment or a lot of this stuff on Twitter, which I've become very harsh about muting people that mm. basically I don't, I haven't blocked. I've only blocked people who are like really weird bots or, you know, that are like very obviously like not human or criminal. Um, but you know, I've, I've taken to very viciously or, you know, very um, ruthlessly muting people who engage in bad faith. And I sometimes fear that I'm losing out, you know, that, that's just like a, a low moment for them. Uh, but I don't really regret it that much because it's just, it, it, that strikes me as a, as a zero tolerance policy that if, you know, if I see something where uh, like, Oh, I log into Twitter and what's going on. I'll think, okay, what's, Oh, this is the debate that everybody seems to be talking about. What's the situation here. And if I am led away from anything remotely real into some personal ven- you know, vengeance fantasy or whatever. Um, I just don't ever want that person to distract me again. So I'll, I'll mute them. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned Barry Weiss talking about, I mean, you know, we, hopefully someone on Twitter can, uh, can illuminate how to pronounce your first name. Right. <laughs> if we can be led into, into truth and enlightenment on that subject. But anyway, whatever, however you pronounce your name. Um, you know, this the same issue from, or the same person, different issue, same people, presumably, from like a couple of weeks ago in the Olympics. Uh, there was this issue of a of an American woman, uh, and the details become foggy now. She either won the gold or she won the gold by performing some maneuver that had never been done by, a, by at least an American woman before, uh, at the Olympics, whatever it was, you know, this American woman did this great accomplishment, uh, at the Olympics and, uh, Weiss tweeted a reference to Hamilton, you know, America, uh, immigrants get the job done because this woman was the daughter of Japanese immigrants and, you know, to America. And in the context of the left talking about people as immigrants and talking about people as the children of immigrants or the descendants of immigrants 
all just kind of blur together because in the context of the left, we, we just all think about the whole country as the nation of immigrants. So we are all immigrants. And it's just a rhetorical approach that, that we just use, notwithstanding the, the fact we all understand that some people are literally immigrants because they literally came from a different country to America where they now live. And other people, you know, have were born here and have had their parents and parents' parents all born in this country. Uh, it, it, the, the latter factual case doesn't matter because in this general rhetoric of you know, pro-immigration, uh, pro-openness, pro-cosmopolitan and multiculturalism, whatever particular angle on it, it's all uh, it's all a positive spin, and we all talk about all of us as immigrants. But you know, lo and behold, <laughs> this group of people who uh, have an axe to grind against Weiss take this reference and assume, or here's a, they communicate about it as if the context were not of the left praising immigration, but the context were of the right. In fact, of the extremely reactionary, retrogressive, racist, sort of Jim Crow one drop right, where, you know, even though this person is an American citizen because she was actually born in this country, uh, the fact that her parents were immigrants means she's not a real American. That's obviously what she really meant when she tweeted that this American athlete, you know, was an immigrant. How could she, how could she call this person an immigrant? This person is an American citizen. Uh, you know, and, and the, and the degree of deception involved here, you know, is either that these people are deceiving us and therefore should be ashamed of themselves or they're deceiving themselves to the extent that they actually would assume that that comment was coming from that more negative exclusionary racist context, as opposed to the, um, you know, the pro-immigration context suggested by the fact that it was a reference to Hamilton, you know, which is about immigration at the core of the American experience and the American idea. And so, you know, the fact that so many people, um, yeah, you know, it's not helpful to, um, the sort of whine and bemoan, that was the you point know, of the loss of character. Well, we're not <laughs> David Brooks here. And actually, oh, okay. you know, I've, I've gone, you know, I, I've, I've finally just become willing to cut off David Brooks. I was I willing know. to defend it's, him. It hurts for a while, but but, but no longer. Um, so maybe someone should take that. Uh, maybe we, you know, should talk about ethics and character and morals, you know, so that we can do it better than David Brooks uh, can. But I'll I'll cut that off now. But anyway, it's just, it's just still a shame. And and I think the point is we 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 have to build norms around using social media, uh, using these technologies, interacting with these, um, these arena of human behavior, um, arena, uh, because the spaces exist, the human beings who are using them are being shaped by them in certain ways and rules will have to be written one way or the other. And those rules should encourage good behavior, positive behavior, truth seeking behavior, 
and not this uh, petty, deceptive, destructive, stupefying behavior. Um, and so, you know, the, the fact that Barry, Barry Weiss seems to be the target of so much of that um, kind of naturally makes me assume that she's worth defending. I mean, she just seems like, you know, if, if you're the, if you're the subject of so much misdirection, like I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm inclined right. to approach your ideas. If you can't you know, find just, real things to criticize them for. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, if, if, if people are talking about this, this, I mean, to go back to your example, um, if people are, if people read an entire article and then say, oh, she linked to a, you know, a fake account and, you know, didn't even understand that there was a fake account. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a blow. Yeah. That's not a good, that's not a good sign for her, uh, sort of acumen as a researcher, but going back to your point, like, what did that actually have? Can, can you now explain to me how that actually undermined what she was saying? <laughs> you know, like, um, and of course they can't. And so it's like, oh, so you were accepting everything else in the article then because you don't have a, you don't have a comment about that. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the criticism that comes closest to justify the closest to correct criticism about the article would be that people on the right have as their priority, this obsession with um, college students and how accepting they are of other people's um, viewpoints. But then again, I mean, it's a whole separate, almost a whole separate podcast to talk about that because a lot of the people who are at issue in many, but not all of these left-wing protests on college campuses are people who were only invited by the local conservative chapter specifically to rile people up like Milo Yiannopoulos. There's no, he has nothing to say. And Coulter yeah. and Milo Yiannopoulos do not have, you're not inviting them over because the substance of what they have to say is fascinating. You're doing it because you want to just annoy all of the liberals on campus. Right. Well, that, that reinforces what we were talking about before, which was if we all, irrespective of our political priorities and ideological positions, stepped back from the conversation to say, what should a speaker, what should, you know, a, a speaker, both in the abstract sense of anyone initiating a, an act of communication or a speaker in the sense of someone coming, potentially being paid to um, give a talk at a college. What should their approach to facts and truth and uh, the effort to blend horizons of understanding rather than split us apart and prevent us from understanding each other? Uh, that priority would, I think, very clearly exclude people like Milo and Ann Coulter from being invited in the first place. Right. Right. Um, you know, you'd be inviting people uh, like, um, I mean, the first one to come to mind is, is David Fromm. And until I say his name, none, none others, <laughs> none other will come. Someone who's, who's genuinely conservative. Uh, not extremely conservative by American standards, given how far uh, 
that category has become warped in recent years. Right. But, you know, someone who, despite being uh, very vocally never Trump, is kind of using the, it's like using the, he seems to be using the opportunity um, offered by people inviting him to come and criticize Trump to talk about conservatism. Right. <laughs> so he's, 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 he's kind of a one man kind of crusader for uh, conservatism, but he's doing it sort of under this aegis of um, this kind of, this, you know, very hardcore critique of the president. Um, Max you know, Boot, so I think, is sort of a similar one like that. Yeah, yeah. Max Boot, similarly. Um, although Max Boot is doing this weird thing that uh, where he seems to be... Like, he wrote this article about how he takes progressive claims about society more seriously right. than he used to. I mean, he's, he's sort of positioning himself to slide away from where he was politically, at least. Um, but it's a very intellectually honest article. I mean, I was very... His talks yeah. about that, they sort of sum up something that we've, I think, mentioned a bit before on this show, and we talked about Never Trumpers way back when, which is this thing about, well, once you're freed from your side's shibboleths, what does that allow, what does that free your mind up to think? And what does that say about tribalism? Um, Which, you know, there's an example on the left, which was Joe Lieberman. He was forcibly removed from the Democratic Party, got reelected anyway. And then Democrats got mad that he started thinking for himself more on opinions, on things where they disagreed with him. Yeah. But you know what? They could have just not kicked him out of the party. (laughs) Right. I I mean, I think it's, it's it's a really tough it's a, it's an example that's worth thinking about because it's very tough, I think, for everyone involved. Because if you know, I'm not saying that you are, but you know, if you came at that as a like Joe Lieberman fanboy, you know, you'd have to answer very hard questions about um, his role in making Obamacare sort of a right. His a saying mess. single payers you know, off the table right at the beginning. His his saying it's off the table. You know, I saw, I, I'm not an expert on this issue on, and on this history, but I saw recently that um, you know, very specifically that um, he was the one who killed uh, 55 plus buy-in for Medicare that would have otherwise been in you know the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, and so he would have to answer for that. But simultaneously, you know, at exactly at the same time, if that is was so important to you, uh, Joe Lieberman hater, then you should have understood what you were doing when you pushed him out of the party. Right. You know, that someone with power who gets slapped in the face and survives in the next round is not going to cooperate with you in the way that they would have. One, if they had not been forced to prove to themselves that they could survive without your support. Uh, and two, you know, just the natural human reaction of getting one's uh, back up after being sort of repulsed or you know attacked. Anyway, yeah. Well, I think this brings us to a nice um, a nice uh, end to this discussion because um, uh, it's it's my priority to get a little bit more sleep today. Because for today's sign off, let me just I'm going to opine quickly on daylight savings time. <laughs> which we were afflicted with last night. And here is my thought. It's bad. I don't like losing an hour of sleep. Stop it. 